So when people are advocating for just build recovery beds and put people in them, most people don't see themselves as being sick. They're not patients. They're people that are using drugs, trying to get on with their lives. And so to say that you need a bed to fix you is uh, not what people are looking for, actually. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a popular returning guest all the way back from episode 17 in October 2018, a perennial entry on Vancouver Magazine's Power 50 list. He was ranked number six in 2019 for his leading work on opioid research and advocacy for harm reduction strategies and a regulated legal and safe supply of drugs in tackling the opioids poisoning crisis. He was the program director for epidemiology at the BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS. He was the co-lead investigator of the Evaluation of Insight, North America's first supervised injection site. He received his medical degree from McMaster University and his doctoral degree in epidemiology from Harvard University formerly the executive medical director of the BC Center of Disease Control. He is a professor at the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. He is, of course, Dr. Mark Tyndall. Dr. Tyndall, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. It's nice to see you again. And you. It's been a little while. It's been a while. You said October 2018. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Your episode was so well-received that I knew even back then that I wanted to have you back on to follow up on a lot of the things that we we chatted about. I want to summarize some of the key takeaways from that episode that we recorded together, sure. and then we can go from there. So you made a case for decriminalization in the context of the opioids and fentanyl poisoning crisis. And from my understanding, decriminalization effectively does two things. The first is that it unburdens some of the most marginalized people in our society from the criminal justice system. People with addictions to hard drugs, a lot of whom have severe trauma history, they would not now be criminalized for their addiction. And two, in a larger context, decriminalization enables safe supply as a harm reduction method. And what this achieves is that now people are not incentivized to go do crime or sex work, to pay for drugs. They don't have to procure drugs from dealers, which is particularly important in an opioids poisoning epidemic. And effectively, because of safe supply, they're kept alive, which gives them the opportunity to live better lives. Is that a fair summary of your case for the decriminalization of all drugs? Uh, That's a great summary. Yeah, I couldn't have summarized it better. I think the one other um, overriding principle is criminalization slash prohibition is what's really led to fentanyl in the first place. So Mm. by clamping down on uh, the importation of drugs um, inevitably leads to more concentrated, easier to import drugs. And, right. uh, and hence we have fentanyl and carfentanyl, substances that are imported and are essentially impossible to intercept because mm-hmm. they're just so small and concentrated versus big bales of heroin that might come through the port. So a prohibition um, is part of criminalization and uh, really that's led us to where we're at as far as the what drugs are available on the street right now. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a great point to emphasize as well. We'll get into political will, but we have seen some politicians and recently the Conservative Party of Canada use the words decriminalization and legalization interchangeably. What is the difference between the two? Well, I think we can um, take you know some lessons from cannabis, for instance. So the whole impetus to decriminalize was that we were charging and giving criminal records to young people for trying marijuana, and mm-hmm. that you know became that. Why would we ever think to do that? Mm-hmm. So uh, that would be sort of decriminalizing people's use of these drugs, and then we've stepped to legalize it. So why shouldn't we allow people just to just to have it as a legal product. So Mm -hmm. if you look at something like heroin, 
um, to decriminalize would be, as you pointed out, that instead of chasing people around the streets for having heroin in their pocket and putting them in the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. then that doesn't make much sense um, to how we're you know, re-traumatizing people and making things much worse for them. Um, if we legalized it, that would mean that um, we could have stores that, that sell heroin or you right. could legally get it. And yeah. uh, I... Um, I I personally believe that that would be fine. That we should full legalization, full legalization, and I think with the right education and uh, and restrictions and regulations that mm-hmm. we could uh, uh, we would not um, increase the number of people using heroin. I, sure. I think we, it would be about the same. Um, but I think as far as how the public perceives it, I think the uh, uh, certainly a first step would be this decriminalization idea that mm-hmm. you, once you get it, you cannot be criminally charged with possessing it. Yeah. So, so that's a way. But cannabis is a is an example where we went the, all the way to the legalization route. And actually, there's issues with that. Even though I support legalization, then you take the step into commercialization and then it can be incentivized that way more people will use the product because Mm. now there's a profit motive and an advertising mechanism (laughs) and things. And for heroin, we wouldn't want to get into that situation that, uh, you know, there's billboards all over advertising the best heroin in Vancouver. Sure. Yeah. Um, So you could, you know, we'd still want to, you know, heavily regulate these substances that clearly are can be dangerous for people. And that's a good point to emphasize because I feel like anytime someone brings up legalization or even decriminalization, you hear some pundit or politician saying, oh, so you're just going to have heroin at your grocery store and kids can pick it up and buy it. And it's like, no, it would be regulated like a lot of other substances. (laughs) And in Canada, we've uh, really, I think, overshot with alcohol. So Mm -hmm. now it's become so ubiquitous and there's so much promotion of it that we've, there's a lot of people using alcohol that without that promotion probably wouldn't be using it or not using it as much. So I think- Well, it's ingrained in the culture, right? Ingrained in the culture and there's a lot of damage. So, you know, we tend to focus on these hard drugs that are affecting our society, but by far alcohol is the biggest uh, damaging, uh, damaging substance we have in our communities right now. Sure. So what would you say to someone who says that legalization exacerbates the opioids crisis? Because that was the argument made by the Conservative Party. And I just want to note that this was in the context of criticizing a private member's bill from a Toronto area MP, a liberal MP, to decriminalize possession, which although top public health officials like yourself support and advocate, is something that is being constantly rejected and resisted by the uh, Trudeau government. Well, I think there's this misconception somehow that if you ban something that people won't get it, and we've proven that is not the case. So if it was as simple as saying, let's criminalize it and uh, and ban it, Mm -hmm. and then we wouldn't have any drug problem, that is not We've done the natural history of that over decades, and it doesn't work. So people will find ways, and then we create criminal activity to actually import and distribute. And the the consequence of that is just well, we're seeing it right now. Mm -hmm. It's it's just uh, it just doesn't work. It's just been it's just been a total nightmare as far as what we've inflicted on the most vulnerable people in our society. The Mm -hmm. those are the people that are using these drugs, and we've just. uh, um, you know, just driven them further and further into the gutters. And uh, it. so it's a nice thought, I guess, in a utopia to say sure. we're, somehow we're going to be a drug-free society, but that is just never going to happen. Yeah. Let's talk about these consequences, because in 2019, we actually saw a 36% decrease in overdose or poisoning deaths here in British Columbia, the first decrease since 2012. Have we turned a corner on the opioids crisis? Well, that's a really hard, hard question. I, I say no. I don't want to, um, uh, you know, um, undercut the efforts that have been made, and I've been part of supporting those things. We, I think with those statistics, though, one crucial point is that the number of overdoses reported or overdoses calls actually went up 
in 2019. Oh, really? So the huh. chance of you overdosing is worse. Huh. The chance of you dying from your overdose is less. And is that because of the distribution of naloxone? naloxone. Yeah. We've given out literal hundreds thousands of naloxone kits mm. and uh and many have been you know 50,000 have been used so it's uh we've reversed a lot of overdoses there's now 30 overdose prevention sites across the province and mm-hmm. uh, they're intervening every day on overdoses there's probably increasing awareness in the community of the dangers of of fentanyl. People Mm -hmm. have probably adjusted their use a little bit, but having said that, there's just as many overdoses happening. Yeah. And you put that in the background of losing 5,000 people in the last uh, three years that, uh, you know, in in some kind of more cryptic way, you know, we're losing vulnerable people. Mm. Like there's not endless numbers of people that are going to die of fentanyl overdose and uh, we've lost 5,000 of them already. I mean, it it doesn't make sense that it would just continue going up. So uh, just from an epidemiologic point of view. So I I think that we've we've really done what we, uh, well, we we in many communities have really worked hard to uh, um, educate and intervene early as we can in overdoses and reverse them. Um, Mm -hmm. But the chance of you overdosing in BC today is uh, no better than it was in 2016 Hmm. because the drugs are the same and in some cases worse. I mean, um, so we haven't really uh, confronted um, the main problem and that is people are buying uh, very toxic drugs. Mm When This Is Van Color did its live show as part of the Vancouver Podcast Festival, comedian Katie Ellen Humphreys was very honest in expressing her pride for the downtown east side. And she noted that while the poverty, perhaps the lack of mental health services and turning away from marginalized communities in the downtown east side was not unique to North America, A lot of the solutions, the safe injection sites, the harm reduction work and advocacy was very unique. This year, you unveiled a very unique project, the My Safe project in the downtown east side, described as a biometric opioid vending machine. Can you explain to me what exactly is the My Safe project? Okay. Well, if we weren't hooked up to headphones, I guess I could walk two blocks over and show you. So maybe we should tape the show from the MySafe machine or something. But um, So this is a 800-pound steel box that's bolted to the floor. It looks much like an ATM. It's got a big video screen on the front. um, And people can access that machine through biometrics. It reads the palm print or the the vein pattern on your palm. So it's kind of airtight. You don't have to touch anything. It's not a fingerprint. Um, Oh, so you don't even touch the machine to read the print. Oh, that's cool. put it about two or three inches away from the the sensor. Mm -hmm. Um, It welcomes you to the machine and uh, dispenses your medication. It takes about uh, 10 seconds to do that. Really? And so once I get people enrolled in that program, it, I can, with their, you know, um, in discussions with them, what's the most convenient thing for them? Um, mm-hmm. Most people start off at picking up basically one dose at a time. So I can, I can um, program the machine. And they are picking up a type of opioids. Yeah. Right? So it's filled with uh, Dilaudid, which is hydromorphone. Mm-hmm. And we just base, I just basically use an eight milligram uh, tablet. And so okay. people are on between eight and 16 of these per day. Um, and um, eight or sixteen tablets. Tablets, right? And so they can, when they start, usually they're uh, they have to come four times a day, and I divide those sixteen pills up, mm-hmm. and then uh, there's three or four now that have graduated to coming twice a day, and then I can probably go to once a day for some people mm-hmm. just to make it more convenient, and they can be in and in and out of there, and as I say, about ten seconds. Wow! Um, I have real time. Um, app that I know who's got it, when they got it. So every every pill that comes out of that machine, I, I know is mm-hmm. regulated. It's, you know, it's, it's all uh, very tightly uh, recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, if people, you know, didn't show up for a day or two, we could set, we could go find out why in case they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, there is a, a really almost real-time connection. Um, 
I hang out there quite a bit. So there's 15 people using it currently. So I, I know them all very well now, but you could, um, you know, if the program were to uh, scale up, um, there's many ways you could still keep in close contact with people. Because one of the pushbacks initially is, well, why would you want a machine when you could have people? But um, <laughs> people really, the people, uh, the one thing that they really appreciate is kind of the autonomy and coming when they want and getting in and out of there quickly. Um, there's no expectations that when they get those pills, they have to use them right away. So mm-hmm. people can decide when they want to use them. Um, they And you know, one of the huge problems we have with the overdose crisis is people that are injecting alone. So over 80% of people that are found dead are found dead in their right. in their rooms. So uh, there is a, you know, and it's not that surprising when this is the way that we've treated drug use. It's illegal. It's, uh, you know, people are not proud of their drug use. They mm-hmm. want to keep it as quiet as possible. They, it's the, Many people do it in the privacy, as much privacy as they can get. And now with the overdose crisis, all of a sudden we're saying, oh, don't inject alone. Come out and, you know, come out with us. And uh, we're not... We're not really set up for that. So um, we have to allow people to use where they normally use. And if I give them a packet of these uh, hydromorphone pills, the chance of them overdosing is essentially zero. Mm -hmm. Like they know exactly what they're getting. The problem with fentanyl and buying uh, packages of powder on the street, you have no idea of the potency. And uh, so most people, you know, day in and day out, they... Uh, do fine with fentanyl, but mm-hmm. then they'll the, every time they buy some, they haven't really. They're taking a big chance that this is a bad batch, and uh, they can overdose. So, and vending machine sounds like a bit of a misnomer because it sounds like it's already programmed in terms of how much someone can take. Yeah, it's per an day at, or... it's an ATM. Like basically, okay. it's yeah. it's a big ATM that that's a high tech ATM, and uh, right that. Uh, um, so it's not like someone can go there and clean the machine out effectively. No, <laughs> yeah. it's, it'd be impossible pretty much to break into it. Oh, is that right? Um, okay. The way it's all, yeah, there's there's alarms on it. There's tons of locks. I mean, it's, it's a very secure thing. And you'd have to have quite a few people in a big truck to actually go in. So if, I guess people do steal ATMs, and so it's possible. But this is like three times as big as your normal ATM. So right. it's... Uh, so it's pretty and it's secure. Indoors in the retail space beside the uh, OPS site. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I work with uh, with Sarah Blythe and the OPS group and some of the staff we share and things. So to kind of um, support it, because I, I really feel um, well, one of the um, you know proudest parts of it is it really has been a community based effort to do this. So mm-hmm. I've really worked with the community and ground up. Um, this probably would never have happened if I. Um, had have tried to do it all through the the regular channels. So sure. the way I've been able to uh, um, get it going without you know without somebody shutting it down is I haven't really <laughs> challenged that many regulations. Right. It, okay. So I'm a doctor. I write a, a legal script. It goes to a pharmacy. They register it in PharmaNet. It's dispensed to the person. And basically, mm. once those once any drugs leave the pharmacy, there's really no regulations. We advise people what to do with them. And all I'm doing is allowing people to store them in a safe place that I can regulate. So um, it's not like I'm filling this machine up with drugs and giving them out to people. These are their drugs. These are their medications and they have have access to it through this biometric. So um, there would be problems, especially people who are, you know, marginally housed and um, are not housed at all, um, giving them a week of these dilated pills, it would be difficult for them to, you know, keep them safe and manage them. And so basically this is just a very safe lockbox where people can keep their own medications and, uh, and access them. Yeah. And I believe I heard that you have 15 people using the machine right now. Right. So that my, it's been in operation since the beginning of December. So, uh, about three months and, uh, my uh, my objective at that time was just to prove the technology, and mm-hmm. you know it's, it was new to me too, and it's been a learning process, and we've been tweet making tweaks here and there, and improving it, and making sure it's you know it's online and working. And uh, yeah. I did that with uh, five people starting out that I handpicked, but it's up to fifteen 
basically compassionate access. So if there's people coming in there, multiple people every day wanting to be on the machine, if I put a sign outside to sign up, it would be, there'd be lineups around the block for sure. Sure. So, uh, but there's been 10 people that I've got to know and they've hung around and I've, uh, I've allowed them, I've written scripts for them. Yeah. Um, but now we're at the point where um, it needs to be scaled up and expanded. I think I've proven the concept that we've done some follow-ups. I mean, you know, it's, most people will tell me that it's been life changing. Like, like yeah. I don't, I don't hustle as much. I don't need to do hustle as much. I don't buy the same amount of drugs on the street. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have a, I get up in the morning, and instead of you know finding twenty dollars to get a hit of uh, fentanyl, I can mm-hmm. just come to the machine and get it. I mean, it's life changing for people. So uh, I really how feel how many that- people can use one machine? Like, let's say you do scale it up. How many people per machine, effectively? Um, yeah, without getting into too much uh, uh, detail that people won't be interested in, the, right? For a prescription model where every uh, package has to have the person's name on it, mm-hmm. um, there's 48 rows in the machine, so I can get 48 people on one machine. Basically, oh, okay. have to go. But the beauty of the technology is you could network these machines throughout the community because we know that people won't travel, you know a long way to get this. Right. Um, and um, so if we had a whole network throughout the province and instead of assigning the pills uh, when they go in the machine, the machine would assign who got them on the way out. Right. So you yeah. just load a b- bunch of different dosages in the machines and we'd still be able to know exactly who got it. I'd still be able to assign different doses and different times for different people. Mm-hmm. But they, the machines would talk to each other. So people could go to other machines. And even, you know, for the methadone's a great example where uh, methadone should also be put in these machines because one of the biggest hurdles for people, they have to, they're assigned to one pharmacy. So every mm-hmm. day they have to go there. If they have a, a friend in Kelowna, they, it's very difficult for them to do that. So yeah. if you could have a machine in Kelowna and they could go and, and use it. So I think there's great potential for this kind of technology technology to uh, mm-hmm. allow people access and a, a lot of autonomy. One question I have is going back to the podcast that we recorded earlier in 2018, you said that fentanyl had replaced heroin in Vancouver effectively. This world is very foreign to me. Is there anyone who is addicted to fentanyl that wouldn't want the the uh, hydromorphone? That's a great question, and uh, this is one thing that we're uh, we're studying. We'll we'll follow people. So uh, mm-hmm. fentanyl is uh, much more potent. Uh, people will tell you over the last four years, when fentanyl is the main opiate available, that mm-hmm. people's tolerance has gone up and they're using m- more, and that hydromorphone pills just wouldn't do it for them anymore. With some of the, the feedback I got, mm-hmm. the fifteen people that I've uh, have enrolled who are you know by definition, uh, fairly heavy fentanyl users to Mm. get in this program have all found a lot of benefit from the hydromorphone. Now, it doesn't mean they're not buying any fentanyl or any street drugs. It might not be uh, quite enough, but it's uh, certainly... uh, for a lot of people, uh, very uh, uh, very close to being enough, and yeah. uh, I've arbitrarily set the cutoff at the 16 pills. But there's really no reason if people tell me, "Look, I'm buying you know, uh, you know, a quarter of as much fentanyl as I used to, but I'm still had bu- need some. Um, mm-hmm. Could I get more? I, I think we probably have that discussion kind of phase two of this project because I want to get people to the point where they don't have to buy any any street fentanyl. But as a harm reduction perspective, even if I can give half the opiates through the machine and they have to buy half on the street, that's a half, you know, it's 50% less likely they're going to overdose. So from my perspective, the success of the program isn't that everybody doesn't buy any more fentanyl. I mean, that's my goal. But um, at this point, um, any help would be, I think, is is still valuable for people. And just the the main thing, there's, you know, trying to make people understand a safe supply is, uh, I spent 
a few years doing this. So, <laughs> I mean, the one thing to get over is that, well, don't these drugs kill people and why would you give them these drugs kind of idea? Right. And I have to explain to people that it's not really the drugs that are killing them. It's the too potent of these drugs that are killing people mm-hmm. and overdosing. And if people get a regulated supply of them, they're unlikely to overdose. Um, but this, the second thing is how important this is to people's well-being. And uh, just the grind that we force people into every day, you know, mm-hmm. if you walk out in the downtown east side, most of those people are searching for ways to generate just enough money to get a, get enough drugs for themselves. And, yeah. uh, and just trying to interrupt that hustle is, uh, is life-changing for people. And yeah. so uh, people, there's a couple of people who uh, have got jobs. They didn't have them before, even in a couple of months. From um, this program? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And people, uh, you know, everybody's told me in the follow-up that their, uh, their street involvement is way less. Hmm. From nothing, I don't do any street involvement anymore to, you know, I do about half as much as I did at the beginning. So, hmm. I mean, um, even from a crime prevention point of view, the police are fairly interested in, they're very supportive of this idea. Okay, and that's From great. their perspective, it's crime prevention because yeah. why would we want to be chasing people all over the place doing small crimes uh, to get these drugs when you just give them to them? And the the other amazing thing is that what what prohibition and criminalization does is make these drugs exorbitantly expensive for what they are. So one dilated pill from a pharmacy is thirty five cents. So I can give people wow. a whole day's supply for about six dollars <laughs> um, on the street. They'd pay two hundred dollars. Like it's it's. Um, it's so extortionary the street economy for drugs. Of course, yeah. That if you can undercut that, then uh, it's um, yeah, it's life changing. And one thing you've said repeatedly, and I've heard you say in other media as well, dead people don't recover, hmm. right? If you if the goal is recovery, you have to keep them alive first as a starting point, right? Yeah. Which makes uh, a lot of sense. The question I have for you is: the people that have signed up for the program so far, it's in a pilot stage effectively, are they there in terms of recovery? Because again, we talked about this before where you can't force someone into rehabilitation or recovery. So are these people that have actively taken a first step to that or they are users effectively? Yeah. Another thing that people would be interested in, we asked everybody at the beginning, what's the goal of the program for you? Mm -hmm. And everybody... 15 people said to reduce or stop their drug use. So that is- 15 to 15. Yeah, yeah. everybody. That's what they want to do. They mm-hmm. they would like, they don't want to be risking their lives with fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Many of them have, all of them pretty much have overdosed at one point in time, some many times. Yeah. And uh, so clearly just for their survival, they're very interested in the program. But they they all have a chance to sit back and try to see what they can do about their- their drug use. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, I think this is a first step for them all to uh, uh, have a chance to, to see where they're at and uh, to try to uh, regulate and reduce their drug use. So, um, yeah, I've, I've always argued that the we have the addiction system totally upside down when mm-hmm. we start with abstinence. So we take somebody who's like really using a lot of drugs, really entrenched in the streets, and the basic thing we offer them is, well, you should really stop using drugs. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And so if we should take people, right now you're using you know, very dangerous drugs on the street. Well, the first step would be here's drugs that you can use that aren't dangerous, and then we can start to work with work with you and engage you. And that's the only way I think for most people that, that can get on a, a you know on a road to healing and what recovery. I mean, mm-hmm. again, the concept of recovery people need to understand. It's the stories of most people that that I've treated over the years isn't that things were going swimmingly well. They got found drugs, hit rock bottom, yeah, and now they right. have to recover. A lot of people have uh, had really rough times of it right from day one, often from their childhood. And sure. so what and are they Gabber recovering Rete from? Has done studies on this and other yeah. people have done studies about the yeah. backgrounds of a lot of the, the people in the downtown east side. And it's yeah. usually trauma is the, the commonality, right? Totally. And so I think that people need a chance to to heal and deal mm-hmm. with it and get it with their their trajectory of their lives have included a period of drug use and for many decades of drug use. And yeah. so 
I don't, I'm not asking them, you know, put that all behind you. That's, that's their life. And, yeah. uh, that I think that, um, most people would feel they'd be certainly better off not using these drugs. But mm-hmm. for most people, the drugs are the answer, not the problem. Like if you talk to some a woman who's you know in the sex trade in the downtown east side, um, without drugs she'd be dead. Like the, mm. this is what keeps their what keeps her going, and it's a, yeah. a vicious, terrible cycle that people are in. But uh, asking her to stop using drugs is very, very difficult and how yeah. how is she going to deal with everything around her how what you know so um it's a it's a life process for a lot of people and uh you need to start off i believe with uh you know the old saying meet people where they're at or you know mm-hmm. find out what they want and if you ask anybody what they'd want it would be a uh, a way to get drugs without paying all that money and a safe supply of drugs and sure. that's exactly what i'm offering people and um yeah, I think I think for a lot of people in that program, it's a revolutionary for them. Mm-hmm. And the hydromorphone they can t- ingest orally; they can grind it up and inject it. Is right. that correct? Yeah. So that's another fascinating thing. You know, again, I'm uh, I'm uh, basing some of what I say on my observation of just 15 people, mm-hmm. but um, none of it surprises me. So I'm quite confident this is what we'll find. But um, people, um, for the most part, um, inject drugs to, because they get much more of a high. So you take okay. drugs that are designed to be slow release and you you uh, put them straight in your veins. None of that applies anymore and mm-hmm. you get the hit right away. And people really want that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some days when people just don't want to be drug sick and uh, mm-hmm. swallowing the pills will be good enough for that. So mm. they they so there's people that some days they inject them and some days they swallow them. There's two people that uh, tell me they almost swallow them all now. I'm wow. giving them enough and they not they're not injecting, which yeah. is very surprising to me and I think even surprising to them because mm-hmm. they they've been able to take them oral. So it gives them the option. Now it's not to say that, you know, one day they might feel I really like to to bang these into my vein and they, they might do it. And uh, sure. so I'm not, you know, I, I don't tell them what to do with the drugs, but it does give them the option um, of what they, whether they want to take them orally or t- inject them. The, mm-hmm. the dilaudids, whether the company did it on purpose or not, are very easy to inject. So they, okay. they, uh, they, you they put them in some sterile water and a little cooker and in about 30 seconds, uh, two to four pills will dissolve into a liquid, and uh, it's quite easy to inject. In contrast to some of the great work that Crosstown Clinic is doing, it sounds like you are enabling the users of the machine with a lot more autonomy. There's no supervision in terms of them consuming the drugs. It's less medicalized in a way. Is, is that a fair assessment in terms of the contrast between what this machine is doing and what Crosstown Clinic has been doing? Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think the work that was done at Crosstown, and I was actually involved in some of the early Naomi study, the heroin trial, like 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think it was really groundbreaking to show that we could stabilize people in a system like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the 150 people that are at Crosstown, I think think that's great. Mm-hmm. But um, there, it is a very medicalized system and on purpose. We wanted, you know, people want to provide wraparound services and, you right. know, give everybody an opportunity to uh, to engage with the medical system. And this is different because um, I'm not pretending to provide comprehensive services. Uh, as a physician there, um, if somebody does have an abscess, I'm quite happy to refer them or call ahead or try mm. to get them some help. But this is not a one-stop place. This is directly to address the toxic drug supply and give people a safe supply of drugs. So Mm -hmm. I am trying to break the mold of a medicalized system. Now, I think that um, many people will find other um, you know, other treatments and they want to go into recovery. And I think the stabilization of people opens that door to them. And uh, I don't believe I have to, you know, supply that on site. There's lots of opportunities we can refer people to that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do think your point that um, this is trying to demedicalize the um, the approach versus Crosstown and both have their merits. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the um, 
the scalability of this program. So it's it's you know relatively cheap, and we could set this up. the The problem with trying to set up similar programs like Crosstown around the province is you quite you need quite a lot of resources to do sure. that. Sure, a lot of people. A lot of people, and so basically, this requires right now a doctor who's willing to write prescriptions mm-hmm. and uh, somebody willing to put pills in a machine. And uh, so you know we could put one of these machines in Nelson tomorrow and um, it would we could get it up and running. Hmm. When we think of that idea of low barrier, is this as low barrier as you can get while still being responsible effectively? I guess that's what we're trying to... I mean, if you took a dump truck and put hydromorphone and heroin in the in Maine and Hastings and just let people come with wheelbarrows... But that I wouldn't guess be that'd responsible, be, that'd right? That would be fairly low barrier, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Um, but... Um, yeah, this is still fairly tightly regulated. Yeah. I mean, they have to, you know, I'm, you know, I try to be very um engaged with what they need. So if somebody says, "Look, um it's really hard for me to get here four times a day. Can mm-hmm. we do it too? Then, yeah. So I, I want to be flexible like that. Um, if somebody tells me, you know, I'm on 12 pills right now, but I'd really think 16 would be better for me, then mm-hmm. okay, let's do it. So I'm trying to make it, you know, to try to work with people to meet their needs the best I can. But at the end of the day, I know who's getting the pills mm-hmm. and I know every, every pill that comes out of that machine who got it. And uh, I'm trying not to make it sort of, um, certainly it's not punitive at all. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but it, yeah, it's fairly tightly regulated, no doubt about sure. it. Sure. Yeah. And this concept of the dispensing machine kind of found you in a bit of a media storm, right? Like you made an offhand comment in a talk or a speech, and then suddenly you had a lot of media chasing you about this idea of a quote-unquote vending machine. Right. Can you... Can you walk me through exactly what happened? Uh, yeah, I've told this story a number of times now, but um, I, it was about over two years ago, I had the idea that people should have access to hydromorphone pills. Mm-hmm. It'd be uh, cheap and expedient, and we could try to address the overdose crisis in mm-hmm. a more direct way. Um, and I, I gave a talk in Victoria over two years ago and said at the end, we really need groups of people to brainstorm how we would get these pills out there, whether it's through pharmacists or nurses or uh, outreach workers, just how we'd access this. And I said we'd ev- we could even put them in vending machines. Yeah. And then the <laughs> Victoria paper said, you know, public health doctor wants to put dangerous drugs in vending machines. That was a headline of the pa- local paper. And then uh, I did all these interviews that, you know, basically starting off are you crazy like what are you, <laughs> would you put these in shopping malls and how are we going right. to protect our children from this yeah. and so try to and I was not able to draw most of the um, interviews back to the what I was trying to get out there we need a safe <laughs> supply of drugs yeah. and then after all those interviews I decided that this was a great idea that we should why wouldn't we use technology why wouldn't we put them in machines why wouldn't we allow people to come and get it and then the next day uh, I got a call from uh, uh, a person in Nova Scotia who said oh I read this thing and we have machines and I said wow. oh Really? Like, and the idea of the dispension is the company, and I'm still working with them, mm-hmm. um, that uh, they were, they thought these machines would be very useful for cannabis because it was being legalized and there was issues around mm. uh, age verification and how we get cannabis out. It's still a right. great idea, I think, because of the biometrics, you could really have very tight age verification. Um, but then I've worked with them and modified the machine somewhat, and uh, and yeah, now it's here. So it's... Uh, and it exceeded my expectations. I mean, it's uh, it's just such a cool piece of technology, and mm-hmm. the biometrics are just so cool. The way they work, um, the way you can um, you know program the machine. Uh, there's a vid- there's a camera. There's a video screen. You could do telemedicine through these things. Oh, really? Okay. So there's all kinds of applications for this kind of technology, and trying to challenge the way that we even give out most prescriptions. So that yeah. we haven't really changed that in a hundred years. A doctor sends a prescription to a pharmacy, you go to the pharmacist and they you wait in a line and they give you this. And uh, I think it's got a lot of implications for the future that um, whether we're dealing with opiates or hypertensive medication, I mm-hmm. mean, there's probably better ways to allow people rapid access to medication. Sure. And uh, so, so yeah, I'm quite excited about thinking of different ways. There's uh did you yeah. did you actually have a concept in mind before you said that in that Victoria speech or no, I guess I 
I'd sound smarter if I said, oh, yeah, I, I thought, <laughs> um, no, probably not. I, 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 I always found technology interesting. But no, yeah. I never envisioned till that point that we, we'd actually put hydromorphone in a machine. Yeah. yeah. I just do love how that backlash did create this yeah. concept. It's very cool. Yeah. And the, the other, you know, I've been a long time working in the community around HIV and mm. more recently hepatitis C. And one of the biggest problems we have is getting people to take their pills right? And, right. and the adherence and how we give them out to people. And and often the pharmacy uh, route doesn't work for people. They mm-hmm. just don't go and pick them up. And so this would be, and the autonomy and the, you know, it's uh, if you're on methadone or HIV meds or hepatitis C meds, there's stigma attached to that. You may not really feel comfortable going into mm-hmm. a place and getting those pills. Um, if you could do it on a machine, um, no questions asked, you just get your pills and you take them. Um, I think that would open up the possibilities to a, a lot more people that could uh, successfully get all their HIV medication, successfully complete their hepatitis C treatment. Yeah. And that actually... Leads me to my next question. With this use of technology, as you've described, this model is very scalable and applicable in different areas as well. So what is your vision for MySafe? Where do you see this going? Well, I'm still at the point where I have to convince people it's a viable thing that that works. So it's still quite small. It was just one machine. Mm -hmm. And uh I still think I have some work to do to demonstrate that it's a that it's effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and once that happens, I'm hoping that I'll get to a point where, um, yeah, governments will be interested in uh, in scaling this up. But I, uh, right now, it's been uh, quite quiet. So um, people will tell if you called the Ministry of Health today and asked them what they think about this, they're say <laughs> they'd say they're interested to see how it works out. Right, you know? and uh, they're not really willing to to make me any more comments than that. Uh, College of Pharmacy, College of Physicians, they, they'd all, they're all kind of sitting back and wanting me to, or wanting us to prove that this, this can work. Um, and that do less harm, than, do more good than harm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the um, big concerns is diversion of these pills so that if they're worth money on the street, then what's to stop people from getting them and selling them, Right. especially selling them to people who aren't using drugs right now. Hmm. And I mean, to me, in some ways, you know, any, if anybody spends time down there, that's sort of a ridiculous concept that, um, you know, people will take their drugs and start to try and deal them to people who don't use opiates. Like it, it just doesn't right. make any sense. That would never happen. Um, as fo- we are following the diversion um, as close as we can, mostly, you know, we don't follow people around or anything, but we, all the follow-ups people have told me there's no reason they would sell these. They would, or trade them because mm. they don't want to use fentanyl. They're trying to use this. And a couple of people who have said that they've uh, given any away is to a friend who's dope sick. So a couple of people have told me, mm. you know, the other day I got four pills from the machine. Um, my friend was feeling terrible and I, I gave him two of mine. I mean, so mm. that could happen. And in some ways that's a, a good thing. If there was any other uh, poisoning epidemic, we'd be asking people to give their friends safe supplies. So sure. if, you, you know, yeah. if there's, you know, if the water was all contaminated um, and you'd go pick up your fresh water, you'd give people six jugs to take to their friends who didn't have it too. So, yeah, but with enough. drugs often, you know, clearly we're very concerned about diversion, but uh, it is, uh, the, any diversion that could happen would be within that community itself. And mm-hmm. under the circumstances, those people would be buying fentanyl and risking their lives. So mm-hmm. I'm not that concern. You have been critical of political will in the past, and I've given you an example of a political party, one that won the most votes in the last federal election, being very anti-decriminalization. You've brought up an example yourself where even a government that may seem to be in favor of this is so with some hesitancy. They want to see results. Our own federal government is he- is hesitant to move ahead on this. Why is there such political resistance to the harm reduction strategies that you propose? Because I'm looking at it and I see if we accept methadone, which is an opioid, to be used in detox clinics and therapy for opioid dependence, why can't we accept hydromorphone or 
safe, clean drugs as one tactic of keeping people safe and promoting healthier outcomes? Yeah, but you've asked me uh, several questions involved. In I mean, I think... <laughs> well, it's about political yeah, will, right? Obviously, it's, uh, it's not a priority issue for people. Like, governments are... Hoping to go. The federal election was a great example where, you know, 12,000 people dying in the last couple of years didn't even make it on the chart. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the politicians see it's a real third rail is- issue. They, they, I think the concept that drugs are bad for society and we should get rid of drugs uh, – puts people use it, who are using them at a real disadvantage of having anybody care. Like, they, mm-hmm. you know, the, at the end of the day, if you die of an overdose by buying illegal drugs on the street, so be it. You did it to yourself. Like, that's still the, the attitude, attitude, I yeah. think, that um, what are we supposed to, what can we do? And uh, the uh, politicians- But drug use is not limited to the downtown no, side. I mean, I know someone sure. who did yeah. pass away. It was an overdose. Yeah. Middle class, upper middle class- you know, yeah. <laughs> in that uh, area of society, yeah. But what this if, is not limited? What if to... Kobe Bryant had died of an overdose versus a helicopter crash? We would his right. legacy would have been far different. What about Prince? You know, you know, one of the greatest musicians of our time. Yeah. He'll be kind of like it's all tainted, you know. The guy died of an mm. overdose, you know. If he died in a helicopter crash on a way to a concert, it, it, people would look it's at not it seen totally as different. Tragic, yeah. Yeah. So it's like there's a there's it's your you've made bad decisions. You it's your fault. And uh, you know if we do that to celebrities, just think what we do that to somebody who's pushing a shopping cart in the downtown east side. There's really not the urgency there that uh, we really need to do anything yeah. because they they've made decisions and they did it. Now, obviously. I'm saying that from uh, the, what I think society views it on. Mm-hmm. Having talked to thousands of people in those situations, I can feel nothing but empathy, and we should be doing a lot for you because the cards you've been dealt have been terrible. And yeah. uh, compared to the opportunities I had, like I'd be doing the same thing as you if that happened to me. So, I mean, we, we really don't uh, have a very empathetic view of people who are using these drugs. And uh, and that's why it doesn't rise to the top of the political agenda and people hope it goes away. The other very noticeable thing with drug use, and especially with the opioid crisis, is it's much more polit- politically expedient to focus on preventing new entrants into this situation. Mm. So most of the money that's been spent at the provincial level is trying to uh, is focused on youth mental health and uh, youth um, interventions, which I can't argue aren't important. Yeah. Um, but it's really telling people that are currently in this situation that we can't do that much for you, mm-hmm. um, and are really our our society should be really focusing on making sure that doesn't happen to other people, and that sells politically far better than uh, what we can do to help people that are. You know, a, a 50-year-old person living in the downtown east side um, who's used drugs for 30 years. I mm-hmm. mean, we don't have much to offer them. We don't really feel that compelled that we that we need to. Yeah. Does it frustrate you when it's not on the national agenda, when it's not being debated, and then when it is being brought up, it's brought up in a way to effectively further marginalize the the drug users? Is that frustrating? Because I do see certain media frames where instead of talking about, okay, well, all these people are dying, yes, so how do we how do we keep them alive? You know, no mm-hmm. one's even asking that basic question yeah. except for people like you. Well, it is frustrating for sure. I mean, um, yeah, there's many of us who've been in, in, in this a long time and you see small, you know, uh, small steps forward, but it takes so long for anything to happen. And mm-hmm. uh, the arguments are often the same. And then when you, what's hap- what happened yesterday with in Alberta with the release of their report about supervised injection sites, I felt like I was pushed back in the 1980s. Like, are you, have yeah. you not listened to anything that's happened in the last four decades? Do you not read any of the material around addiction? Like, it's yeah. basically just this hysterical that people are using drugs on the street kind of idea. Like, yeah, yeah that's really been happening for decades now. And this <laughs> is what we've done to try to improve the situation. And this is, and yeah, the, the comments from the Alberta, uh, the task force and the government comments, like, they're, they're not living in the 
same planet. Like they, mm-hmm. they haven't followed any of this then. And they're just taking it as though, you know, drug use fell from outer space yesterday. And what are we going to do about it? But uh, yeah. it's, you know, a lot is known about what we can do. And a lot of progress in certain areas has been made. But generally speaking, I think we've made very, very small steps in society's view of, of drug use and what we should do about it. Mm-hmm. And you are making it sound more like a cultural issue, like the lack of political will is actually reflective of the lack of will within the culture itself. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't, you know, I, you know, I, I like to put pressure on the government because they're the ones who make decisions about money and things. So, you know, we have to, you know, keep the advocacy going and keep pushing that. But they're they're not they don't lead for the most part they respond to what mm-hmm. their constituency wants and i technically cons- they should lead i yeah. mean they should be inspired we are not the experts or i'm not an expert in policy they should be yeah. giving policy ideas because i think the outcomes are the same people the people that are on the downtown east side everyone wants them to get better and not be in dire straits or yeah. you know not be vulnerable to danger or harm at the end of the day, yeah. right? But it's being able to communicate that idea to the public. So yeah. I do blame Baldish. <laughs> yeah, they could have taken more leadership for sure. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm surprised you had time for this and not talk about coronavirus or something. But I mean, the <laughs> the, uh, the contrasts are like amazing. Mm-hmm. Our response to the coronavirus. Yeah, get like, into no, that. You've, you've been very critical yeah, of this. From the point of the politicians, there's no nothing they can do that would be too extreme to protect us from coronavirus or no amount of money that they could put into the coronavirus response that they'd be criticized for. Because if nothing happens, then thank God we put all that money into the corona response or mm-hmm. look what could have happened. And uh, if terrible things happen, they go, well, they did everything they could because they have to be seen that, you know. So... Um, and something like, and you know, our health minister is pretty much daily up there at a podium telling us case by case, you know, what happened. Today we had 12 and tomorrow we have, today we have 13, yesterday we had 12, that kind of thing, you know. Right. So the de- the granular detail that they're telling us about this, and yet he's never been at a podium talking about 12,000 people in BC who died of an overdose. Like there's no, we're not counting them on the paper every day, you know, three more died today kind of thing. So it's uh, it's uh, the way society views drug use and other threats is uh, obviously totally different. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, and there's stigma, right? It's terrible stigma. And back to what <laughs> I was talking about, ba- blaming, and... blaming people for their own lot. So yeah. if you get coronavirus because you didn't wash your hands and you touched your eyeball, I mean, we don't think that's a, you know, that's not a, a fatal flaw in that's you. That's turning into a moral, moral yeah, failure, yeah, though. I'm seeing right. a lot of shamings <laughs> exactly, online. Yeah. Or why did you wash your hands properly? Yeah, but um, but it, point taken. Yeah, yeah fair much enough. different if you uh, if you put a needle in your arm and you overdose. It's, yeah, yeah. I still hear prominent and respected voices suggesting that we need to force people with addictions into rehabilitation. These are some people that I know in the media, some people that I genuinely like, and it disappoints me that they think you can still force people or someone with addictions into recovery. Can you speak to those people? And there are a lot of people, I think, just regular people, not just necessarily in media, who go, you need to round up these people and you need to put them in a in a facility and then don't let them out till they get clean. And I think some of them are well-meaning. I don't think they, they mean ill intent, they don't want to see people thrown in jail for addiction. They don't want to see people dying, but they do want to see them assembled and forced into rehab. Why doesn't that work as a strategy? Can you break that down for people? Well, we've been basically trying to do that for decades, right? That's why we've shown it doesn't work. But jail isn't rehabilitation or prison isn't rehabilitation. Well, it's it's harsh treatment. It's it's Mm -hmm. For you know, there's drugs in prison, obviously, but it's it does really uh, it's it's a harsh detox facility for most people. I mean, you sure. take somebody off the street and throw them in there. I mean, so you could say that well, then we should have places where we treat people nicer and then help them get off their drugs or mm-hmm. whatever we want to do. But um, 
that's just uh, that's just proven over and over and over again. It just is not the way to do it. People will not respond to that unless they want to stop using drugs. And uh, you know, I think the basic premise is that people will stop using drugs when they find something better than using drugs. And mm. so, if your drug use is self-medication, driven by trauma and uh, um, things that have happened to you in your life, and drugs are what really gets you through the day, and you take the drugs away and don't really change anything else people will revert back to drugs that's what they that's what they know that helps them mm-hmm. that's what they know they can get through the day and uh, unless we start doing that just simply taking people talking nice to them for a few months and then um, but not really changing anything else um, they're just probably going to start using drugs again so uh, I do think that uh, you know other social services, uh, the poverty that we put people in, the no housing we put people in. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things. When I say that um, finding something better than using drugs, that may be a house. Like so, you know, we we know right. that uh, yeah. giving people uh, a place to live is like life changing for people, and mm-hmm. their drug use will will decrease or stop. You know, or mm-hmm. um, giving people a, a way, a, a, an income that they can live on. So you know, we we have our you know our welfare um, um, system hasn't responded at all. So we still mm-hmm. you know as cost of living becomes in, impossible in Vancouver. Um, most people are living on six or seven hundred dollars a month and mm-hmm. what are you going to do with that so um you know so there are things that we could really do society wise to make things better that would be much more effective than putting money into um, fancy recovery homes and expecting people to come out of there in a month feeling way better and changing. Right. So they'd be, we'd be much better putting that into other social services and employment opportunities and trying to get people back on their feet that way mm-hmm. and giving them some self-worth. So mm-hmm. the other thing that I've really found, and even in this in my small project, the support for the machine is all peer driven. Um, several are on the program actually that we employ to kind of l- l- make sure the traffic moves and things. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's life changing to people too. Like, yeah. uh, wow, somebody kind of thinks I have something to offer. And uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of things we can do to make li- people's lives better and make drugs not as attractive to them. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not forcing them into some kind of recovery situation when mm-hmm. when they come out the other side and their lives look pretty much the same and that's why they were using drugs in the first place. Yeah. So I think that's why it doesn't work. And I often go back to a lot of what I learned from you when someone I know complains about, oh, there was someone sleeping on the street near my place or someone's car got broken into. And I, I point out that, you know, if they had that safe supply – they wouldn't have to do petty crime or yeah. break into cars or the crime like that. If they had a roof over their head somewhere safe to sleep, they wouldn't be out there on the exactly. street. So yeah. they, in in one way, the answer seems to be so simple, but you're right. It, it does take a real big shift and turn in our cultural psyche and yeah. how we look at a lot of these issues. Yeah, because we walk by people on the street sleeping on the street and uh, just kind of go, oh, that's terrible. Why would that person be doing <laughs> Like, instead of going, this is a real blight on society. Like, how yeah. can we possibly live in a city like this and just stumble over these people? Of course we have to, like, respond and do something and mm-hmm. give them better housing. And, and, and the expense of, you know, the other thing, like, with a lot of harm reduction and a lot of things we're trying to do to improve people's lives, um, it's caught, we couldn't afford it. But... It's just ridiculous what we pay now. Like somebody who's uh, homeless and using drugs on the street costs society a lot of money. Like yeah. they're in and out of jail, in and out of hospital, they're in and out of break-ins. They're like, they're, it's a it's a terrible life for them and it causes a lot of uh, expense and chaos for us. So it, the investment in in housing, uh, investment in healthcare, mental health care, like mm-hmm. it's, it just pays off so much. And investment in a safe supply of drugs, you know, people are going, well, who's going to pay for these? Well, it's 
right now it's $6 a day to give people drugs they need. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's such a drop in the bucket, you know? It costs $600 for an ambulance to come and uh, to see an overdose person. Right. Like, it, you know, yeah. it, it's a it's a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. And, uh, and the policing costs and what we do in society right now makes no sense. If we took even a little fraction of that money and put it into helping house people and get them mm-hmm. back on their feet, you know, that would be far more effective than... Uh, putting money into recovery beds and forcing people into these beds and stuff if we can't do anything when they come out. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get on a rant here, but I I am always frustrated by the things that are debated in the public discourse with regard to cost or government cost and the things that completely pass without any discussion, mm. particularly things like subsidies to big companies, subsidies to natural resource extractors. You know, we don't debate those things as vigorously as we do when it comes to social services. And I find that to be another cultural shift that I really hope happens, at least in my lifetime, where we are more critical. Why are we debating the the cost of helping effectively poor people? Why aren't we debating the cost of giving out handouts to big, rich companies? Yeah. Right, <laughs> I think we're on the same page there, but I, I do get you know, uh, on Twitter and the media, the backlight, like who, why would we pay for this? Is the often the question? Who's going to pay for this? But there know? is a cost-effective analysis that you yeah. just gave with yeah. regards to the ambulance, right? That's yeah. a great example, or yeah. and the policing cost. Yeah, it's exorbitant, and they'll know. As I said, as I said earlier, uh, the police would see this as a crime prevention thing. I mean, as far as crime goes around drugs. It it always amazes me how uh, gentle people are with their crimes. I mean, stealing a bike or breaking into a car is uh, is about as aggressive as most people get. You know, most people are on the sidewalk trying to sell trinkets, and they've just stolen something from London Drugs, and they're trying mm-hmm. to sell like. You know, if people got angry enough, I shouldn't be able to like walk down the street with my new iPhone and my leather backpack, you know, like just take it from like, you know, you're, you know, people are that desperate, but we've, they're very, um, you know, we've kept them quite controlled basically, despite their desperation. And it's almost (laughs) like it's people get really angry or upset over things that make them uncomfortable even though the actual threat of violence or anything isn't really there. Mm. like Oh, the violence Vancouver's... is to each other, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, I, it's within I've, their camps. and Yeah, I've been down there, you know, for 20 years and so some weeks every day. I mean, it, yeah. I've never felt any kind of harm, you know, mm-hmm. or, or any kind of uh, uh, risk to myself. And uh, maybe I'm oblivious, but uh, – and I know so many people down there now. But um, it's just not – you know, the violence happens – around drugs and mm-hmm. the violence happens within that community and it's a uh, it's it's terrible violence to each other but um we've just created uh people in such a downward desperate spiral that um that's what they do mm-hmm. dr tindall it's been so nice to see you again i have to say that that episode that we recorded a year and a half ago it was a big turning point for the podcast a lot of people started taking notice and it was because of the clarity of dense substance that you provided. And I will always be grateful for your time then and your time now. I listened back to it. The audio quality itself is fine, but the volume mix is a little wonky. And I clearly was not as comfortable on the mic as I am now. Uh, So it was very cringy for me personally. But the way in which you unpacked the case for decriminalization and harm reduction was still incredible. So To the listeners, if you haven't heard it, and if you can bear and put up with my amateurish voice and volume mix, please do check out episode 17, the first episode with Dr. Mark Tyndall. Dr. Tyndall, if people want to follow you or learn more about your work, how do they do that? What's the best way? Yeah, well, uh, certainly my wife would say I spend too much time on Twitter, so I do have a <laughs> I do have a Twitter feed. Um, You've been mixing it up lately. Uh, okay. A lot of hot takes. I like it. <laughs> and you, had, uh, you were slamming the Calgary Sun today, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, they <laughs> they, they made me a little angry. Yeah. Um, I mean, this this uh, safe supply idea has great generated quite a bit of attention um, because we haven't. Uh, um, 
been able to generate any funding support from the government to this point. Um, we are thinking of doing a GoFundMe campaign. So, oh, really? Uh, we're, cool. We, we have another uh, web. We have another f- uh, Twitter feed at called My Safe Project. So uh, we're just toying with the idea of, of doing that. Um, a machine costs thirty thousand dollars. So um, not not exorbitantly expensive and uh, so we we're thinking of trying to raise money for, for a machine that, to put somewhere another machine yeah um, would it be a bigger machine or same size well I think we, we'd make a few modifications but yeah, yeah. so about, about the same thing cool. and, and network them out but um, yeah I think uh, I guess I guess Twitter and I'm happy to uh, I really uh, view my role now is uh, is advocacy and really getting that message out there so I'm uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody especially you of course oh, yeah, yeah. I'm very particular Mo. I'm sorry Mo. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't just talk to anybody but uh, yeah so uh, but I'm uh, always interested in uh, in hearing from people and I'll take the time to get back to them well obviously your time is valuable I think you should talk to everybody if you can because this message needs to be out there and like I said I think you break it down in a very clear effective way that rises above any sort of political stripes. I think we all want the end goal to be the same, which is better living for everyone. It's getting over our own stigmas and our own psyches over how we view a lot of these things. And I think you do a really good job in clarifying it. Okay. I appreciate it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Okay. Mine too. Thanks, Mo. People, he is an advocate for public health. He's on the forefront of innovative solutions for addiction especially in a world where we should not get complacent about the opioids poisoning crisis. He is Dr. Mark Tyndall, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.